This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, what did a trail of oozy slime lead to in Germany? Sir Christopher Gilbert, our favorite Kiwi in Japan, shares that and other amazing stories from around the world in the International Dispatch. He also has some exciting news that you won't want to miss as well. Biologists want to bring back the woolly mammoth, but should we? Greg Fish walks us through the ethics of resurrecting extinct animals and what the consequences scientifically could be. Plus, are you okay with truth or dare? This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with truth or dare? <laughs> Ryan, you're funny. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> okay for those who are new to the shift we have a zoom call uh in the background and uh mike no it was funny because you're actually your your zoom mic was on so when you were like "Ooh, my mic's not on and then you were it was on my oh. mic okay wow so, that's fixed that was i really did hear funny. it don't worry truth or dare okay. that was just a dare actually dare for me to do that no yeah i think i think truth or dare is kind of weird because uh, in theory, it's awesome, but the dares are always just make the party awkward and makes people kind of like uncomfortable. Nobody can think of like a good dare. And I find truth in people sharing the stories is more memorable. So uh, you, often me and my friends will just play like truth or something like that. So dare, man, but truth, or, but yeah. the truth part is fun. Truth part is fun. Um, literally, you have to answer the question. No matter what anybody asks, you have to answer the question. But that takes a lot of trust. Now, dare, the dare part has sort of changed over the course of time. I mean, I think I would probably choose, choose truth just in general. BK, would you choose the dare part? I feel like you would choose the truth part. I feel like you speak to truth. I feel like I probably wouldn't play to be <laughs> to be honest uh, i wouldn't be close to people like that yeah uh unless it was like like amongst my friends it would be like literary truths and so oh, funny dare me to tell you the the crappy literature you've read i don't know um yeah, yeah i oh, the I first thing i thought of was madonna's 1990 documentary truth or dare Mm. I shouldn't have watched right. that. I shouldn't have watched that as like a six-year-old child. You like, cannot who? unsee that. No, who was who was watching me? Like, come on. <laughs> oh, funny. Well, your mom does live in Florida. That seemed yeah. to be. Yeah, that is a thing. Okay, so I mean, dares have taken on a new form with the internet. So with the internet, what the dares became was the truth part on the internet. Let's be honest; for the most part, doesn't exist. The dare part became the internet challenge. The, hey, I'm going to do this. But in the books, like, there was, like, the cinnamon ones and stuff like that. Like, you would do, like, the mouthful of, like, stuff that's stupid things, right? And so what the dare things can be translated fast forward in time to today, which the, the kids call the Internet challenges. So with Are You Okay? Here, we have a brand new Internet challenge uh, tonight on the... Ryan... Oh, that's, that's a, a typo. That's a typo. <laughs> <laughs> that's what, it's a typo. Uh, it's a typo. Ryan just forgot the F in shift. Oh. Thanks, buddy. I dared him. Anyway, uh, internet challenges, new ones tonight on the shift. 
It's a really stupid one. It's even dumber than the Tide Pod Challenge. It's the latest head-scratching social media craze, and 16-year-old Chris Oseguera has done it. Yeah, I could taste the chemical. This is not a good thing to taste. Teens intentionally ingesting highly toxic Tide laundry pods and posting the videos to YouTube challenging others to do the same. Genius, right? A whole generation of geniuses. Well, that thing has sort of faded away. It was very, very dangerous, uh, pretty and colorful, um, but it did lead to a whole bunch of new security caps on Tide Pods and relevant things, because there's not only just Tide Pods, there's also the dishwasher pods and all those things. So at least there's security caps on them now, which is good. That story, by the way, was from NBC News. That was from a long time ago. So what could possibly be dumber than someone taking laundry detergent that's pretty colors and putting it in their mouth so they can taste it. Well, it turns out this is actually dumber. The Food and Drug Administration is issuing an unusual warning, and it's all based on a social media challenge. They're telling people not to cook chicken in NyQuil. This is based on a TikTok trend where people cook their poultry in over-the-counter cough medicine. The FDA says this is dangerous even if you do not eat the chicken. Boiling medication can make it more concentrated and just breathing it in can damage your lungs. Uh, oh God, that, I'm out. That's it. I can't. I can't. No. Yeah. This is, this is, I'm out. Like I'm moving to an island or something and disconnecting. Like this is. <laughs> no more internet. No. Sleepy chicken's not for you, eh? Yeah, no. No, this is unbelievable. Well, first of all, NyQuil doesn't taste good anyway. No. So why would you cook chicken in it, right? And if you're trying to get, like, if it was kids, like, oh, you want to feel drowsy, you could just take NyQuil. I don't understand where the chicken comes into this. Well, I think... you shouldn't abuse it anyway. The thing you're missing is that if you really want to feel tired after eating chicken, make turkey. That That happens naturally, right? According to those who have claimed to participate in this chicken, sleepy chicken challenge, boiling chicken in acetaminophen, dextromethorphan, doxylamine, the basic ingredients in NyQuil, easy, knew that. Other over-the-counter cold medications can cause drowsiness. The FDA down in the States referenced the Benadryl challenge in a warning which urged people to take larger than recommended doses of the drug to induce hallucinations. But don't worry. Allow us to briefly restore your faith in humanity because there's some amazing internet challenges too, like the ALS bucket challenge from 2014. That was cool. In that challenge, people would dunk ice water on themselves and challenge their friends to do it too, all in an effort to raise money and awareness for ALS. I accept the challenge for Brandon Williams, Kevin Durant, Kevin Hart, and DJ Steph Loss, and I nominated LeBron Jr., Bryce Maximus, and President Obama, LLS Challenge. Now, cold, right? That was LeBron James, the basketball player, doing the challenge. Uh, the Ice Bucket Challenge raised over $220 million worldwide, so it worked. It's a combination of competitiveness, some social media pressury things, leading 2.4 million tagged videos circulating around Facebook. Now, I don't... Here, Here's the, the thing. And this is the saddest thing about all of it. Uh-oh. Oh. Why, oh. Is that... There are a lot of these people like the Tide Challenge and all those things. They don't actually do it. They fake it. And they make these challenges and they put ads on their YouTube channels. 
And then they're like, oh, yeah, you got to do this. And then it's all fake. They don't actually do it. And then they put it out there and they make ad money, click money, everything else. And young people don't know that it's fake. And then young people do it. And then they get sick or hurt or whatever. And there's all kinds of things that have happened like that. It's profiteering. Oh, well, here's the thing. I was friends with a viral YouTuber. Still am friends with this viral YouTuber. They're not a viral uh-huh. YouTuber anymore. They've grown up. Uh-huh. Um, however, uh, yeah, we he this YouTuber took me to several conference like big conferencey YouTubey things like Playlist Live in Orlando. Oh wow! And uh, uh, the one in LA, I forgot the name of it. And I met all of these other viral YouTubers, and I found out that ninety percent of what appear to be their authentic videos are all staged, 100% mm-hmm. staged, mm-hmm. 100% staged. There's, they're, they're, yeah. not, they're well thought out and, and staged. There's nothing authentic mm-hmm. about any of them. No, and the world's eating it up and people are copying it. Yes. That would be like Spider-Man, someone being Spider-Man and spinning a web and swinging through Manhattan and then some kid going, sweet, and trying to do it with silly string or something. That's literally the level at which this stuff is crafted. It is wild. And we gobble it up. We just sit there. We consume it. We consume it. We consume it. And um, and it's all fake. It's, it's absolutely terrible. Oh, man, I feel like it's a downer. Okay, let's have some fun here, which I don't understand this one. It makes no sense to me. Are you okay with... Nickelback. Yeah. Yeah, I'll admit it. Look, like not all their music is good, but the songs that are good are amazing. Like every time I hear how you remind me, for example, when that song comes on, there is some something unlocked in my inner psyche that just tells me it's time for you to rock out. And it's like, I don't know. It just takes me back. It's good stuff. And I, I, the band themselves seem like pretty chill people, and I've always wanted to see them live. It's not like a, like I have like three Nickelback songs on my iTunes, but you know, it's kind of like, yeah, sure, why not? They're fun. I I don't get the the vitro like the the horrible hatred. I don't understand why Nickelback when like I would think Maroon Five would deserve way more hatred than Nickelback gets. You know. I people always say nobody loves Nickelback. Well, tell you what, they keep filling up arenas. That's a good sign. And I say don't ever judge Nickelback until you've seen them live because they rock harder than Metallica and all those live. Like there is, it's like Kiss level fire. Yeah, plus yeah. plus plus. I, I saw I saw them live. I was taking. There was a deal with someone back in college. They were like, you drive me, you can come for free. And I was like, "Eh, Mm -hmm. fine, I guess I'll do it. But uh, beer o'clock in the show went on for what felt like forever. He's walking around. They do beer o'clock. They throw a bunch of beer out to the crowd. It's kind of like, eh. However, uh, I feel bad for them in a way that it became fashionable and trendy to hate them and like... Mm -hmm. They well, don't do they, anything they, for me. They're pretty average, middle of the road. And how you remind me, like, I mean, there was, in the year 2002, I think it, it said that there was never a time when it wasn't playing on an FM radio station yep. across North America. A little overdone I, um, for my taste, because I feel it's a little bit of middle of the road boring song, but whatever. 
I don't hate them, but uh, I feel bad for them because mm-hmm. it's fashionable to hate them. Yeah, that's a good point. I um I uh, I was introduced to them young in their career, before they were popular, and um and oh. I can share one little music nugget of my of my music career. I was the very first person in the world to play "How You Remind Me" on the radio. Well, thank you. I owe you a that great you. debt. That was you. That was me. That was me. Uh, no, they did. They um, they brought it to us and they said, um, "Hey, what do you think? This is the single we're going to." And uh, my boss said, "Can we play it right now?" And then uh, the music rep said, "Well, I could accidentally go to the bathroom and leave it sitting on the table. Then Z-Man can play it." And so I did. Went and grabbed it, played it, and that was it. So it was cool. Anyway, um, I don't think I should read this story because for me. Um, I don't, okay, well, I'll read it. So not everybody likes them. The the whole band, including uh, Chad Kruger, the front man, all around cool guys. Absolutely. Just one thing. Most Canadians know him as Chad Kroger, like the grocery chain, not Chad Kruger. So that's wrong. Speaking on Loudwire, at least in broad pa- broadcast, Kruger explained that his surname is often butchered. However, he's from Hannah and he insists it could, should be pronounced the same as Freddy Kruger, uh, you know, the nightmare guy. But you never have corrected anybody when they've called you Kroger, which I always thought was weird. I never get time because it goes, hey, well, here we are with Chad Kroger. Uh, So how are things going? And by the time it gets, it's so far in, by the time I get to say something, I don't actually, because if I just stop and go, actually, it's it's Kroger, (laughs) I'm going to look like such a So I just, I'm just like, whatever, I don't care. But I was doing an interview with... um, this is a lot of years ago. It's been like 2004. Um, and uh, Jerry from Allison Chains was on tour with us. And um, we were doing an interview at a radio station. And the guy said, Chad Kroger. And Jerry just goes, it, he like just stops the whole interview. And he goes, it's Kroger. And I sort of looked over at Jerry. And I was like, and he goes, it's your name, dude. Right. That is your last name. Tell that dude across there how to say it properly so he stops saying it wrong into that microphone and misinforming people. That is your last name, brother. Like, And I was like, wow, you really care about this. <laughs> uh, there you go. And so Chad Kruger, which for me, I was like, okay, it's Chad Kruger. I didn't know that. Um, but they always did tour. And I, I remember Je- that tour with Jerry. And uh, they always did tour. And also Dimebag Daryl was one of the other ones that met on the tour. Those guys, really Very cool stuff. Dimebag, wow, that's oh. lucky. I mean, dang. I just, yeah. just for reference, I always, I up until literally today, I thought it was Kroger. I did not know it was Chad Kroger. I know Ryan was earlier. Ryan's like, hey, did you know that we've been saying his name wrong? I mean, who, Chad Kroger? He's like, oh my god. Which, by the way, Chad's aunt lived in the lake house next to my parents, just outside St. Paul as well, which was cool. Neighbors. Anyway, um, very cool. Um, we had a copy of Curb, the demo copy that they submitted to radio stations before they got a record deal. And I remember we were in an interview and I had the CD and he literally begged us not to play it and, um, tried to steal it from the radio station because he didn't want anyone to have that. Cause this was like burned on a CD demo level stuff from the late nineties. It was really cool. There you go. Nickelback fans. Cause I know you're out there. Even if you're quiet and you lie about it, we know you're a fan. It's Kruger, not Kroger. This is the Shift Podcast. Welcome to the International Dispatch from our world citizen, 
Live from Japan, New Zealand's Chris Gilbert. Joining us from Tokyo, Japan, Sir Christopher Kil uh, Gilbert, our very favorite Kiwi who came to Japan, then to Canada, then back to Japan. And he joins us through the power of the internet. Hi, Chris. Oh, yeah. Hi. Yeah, you almost called me Christopher Kilbert there for a minute. I did, but I was thinking Kiwi, though. See, that's where I got you. <laughs> See? Yeah, you put the New Zealander in a Gilbert, you get Kilbert. I guess that's pretty yeah. good. But um, I've always hated my last name, to be honest. So I wish I kind of could really? Kilbert. Yeah. Why? 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 What's the matter with Gilbert? It's a great name. Uh, it's too close to Dilbert, and it just sounds lame. Hmm. I don't think it's lame at all. I think it could be like, it could be like Gilly could be your next your nickname or something. Oh, What's up, Gilly? That's the third reason is that I never got a good nickname. You know, the nicknames were all things like Gilly. And um, I think it's a good nickname. Gil Gilberto. <laughs> Gilberto. Ooh, Gilberto. All right. Yeah. Uh, so the International Dispatch is some stories from around the world. Um, we have four stories to share with you, one of which uh, lands in the category of personal stories. We will get to that shortly. First, though, let's get started. Chris, take us on a tour. And let's go down to that little place called Australia. Yeah, Australia. Oh, wait, before I just said it. So I got to play the song. Crap. Just drive from town to paradise and you'll see why we call Australia home. Every time we say Australia, we got to play the Straya song. Uh, Sir Christopher Gilbert, um, what is the story uh, that you got with us from the land down under? Uh, in Straya, uh, a man allegedly told uh, people who are breaking into his home um, that ruined his cheesecake. What? Shane. Yeah, it's like two men, two home invaders, budding home invaders, uh, were confronted when they broke into someone's home. Uh, by an angry man holding a large knife after they interrupted his cooking of a cake. Uh, extremely Australian reaction. Hmm. Um, on Tuesday, the ACT, that stands for Australian Capital Territories, kind of like it's DC. Mm -hmm. um, ACT, uh, the court heard the two men forced their way uh, into his home through a garage at about 10 p.m. Uh, on a July night. Uh, one of the men pointed a gun at the resident, which turned out to be a fake gun, by the way, because Australia, uh, who was in the garage, demanded his car keys, um, while the other man allegedly hit him on the shoulder with a machete. Oh. Hopefully, yeah, I know, goodness me, hopefully the, the you know, the, God, what do you call it? The handle, the handle of a machete, I hope. Mm -hmm. um, the other man then went inside the house uh, where there was another uh, person in there uh, visiting uh, the man who lives there. And he was cooking a cheesecake. Uh, the line says here, Prosecutor Beth Morriso told the court the visitor had a large carving knife and allegedly said to the pair of invaders, well, you've up my cheesecake. Game on. Wow. That's the line. That's the frustration line. Not the home invasion, not the gun and the machete. It's the cheesecake. You've up my cheesecake. Mm -hmm. Game on. Wow. Uh, blankety blank 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 in the middle there um i can only say that i can only wish that if two people break into my house while i'm baking that i have the presence of mind 
the calmness and you know the character to turn to them and say you just ruined my spaghetti bolognese <laughs> have you ever made a cheesecake i haven't i don't know how to do it i i've heard it's really hard and i heard it's all about timing like i think it might be like hot cross buns i remember when my mom when i was a kid my mom used to bake hot cross buns and i used to walk into the kitchen while she was doing it and she'd be like close the door and um and the reason i think is you have to keep the air pressure in and or something in the kitchen the huh. same and i think cheesecakes uh maybe not similar for that reason but i think there's a lot of intricate timings that go into it huh. um and uh yeah i think if you get distracted by a home invasion the cake will i don't know sink or explode or something i have no idea i've never um i've never been involved in a home invasion before so i'm kind of guessing it's jarring i would say i don't know yeah i would say it's jarring mm. um two other pertinent aspects to the story um apparently the pair escaped uh in a ute uh it says here a mid-2000s white holden ute which i just want to point out is the national car of australia i'm pretty sure a mid-2000s <laughs> white holden ute. oh everyone knows what a ute is right no what's a ute oh it's like a pickup truck Oh. It's, it's it's like um it's what in america they would call a truck but it's just like you know a, a two two three person cabin with a, tr a long trailer at the back really and um yeah how do you and, spell ute u-t-e u-t-e car oh oh it's like uh yeah. it's like an impala it's like a yeah like a small compact think... car but it's got a bed in the back yeah it's got a bed and it, and also the fact you wrote ute car is just adorable it's just a ute first of all yeah, and it's like an impala but it's very small and think like parochial farmy um the last aspect to the story is that they when they located the police located the pier they found uh the keys to the ute uh i would say uh, on one of the the perpetrators uh bodies on his person quote clenched between his buttocks oh uh, yeah so just gets more australian by the paragraph wow uh that's coming from a kiwi just saying competitive all those things so christopher gilbert joins us from tokyo in japan it's the international dispatch going all the way around the world to europe and germany yeah in germany um someone tried to import a giant bag of snails uh <laughs> into germany um that's bad i'm guessing thing, yeah well the thing about trafficking snails is they're not actually that good at covering up their tracks oh <laughs> uh, they don't do the whole oh. um sweepy broom thing behind them as they walk around mm. um a trail of green slime leads german customs to bag of giant snails i apologize i said giant bag of snails it's a bag of giant snails oh. um it's a hundred giant African land snails and quote other items hidden inside bags at Dusseldorf airport this, uh, this month. Um, apparently, uh, one of the authorities stumbled over a snail on the baggage track and initially thought it was a toy before <gasps> the snail started moving Ooh. by following the trail left by the eight inch 20 centimeter snail. Um, they hooked <laughs> this like, like really like snooping along following this green slide mm -hmm. they found a bag with a hole and with another snail already peeping out of it isn't that a 
adorable. I just looked those um, up. They're huge. Oh, I haven't actually looked at the giant African land yet. snails, eight inches long, 20 centimeters, five inches in diameter. They're like as big as oh, a small actually. cat. Actually, you're not wrong. I actually hadn't considered that. I was imagining like this very adorable, like comic little, you know, stereotypical snails. Cute, like, but these things, now I understand why the guy would think it's a toy. Yeah. Because it's toy size. Yeah. These giant snails are as big as your face is the headline on the dodo. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're large. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not driving a car, Google image it, the, uh, the African land snail. Yeah, I'll post it up at shiftheads.ca for everyone to see what they look like. This is crazy. And, and six bags contained 93 of them. Wow. Uh, 28 kilograms of fish and smoked meat, it also says. And a suitcase full of rotting meat? Gross. Um, all of these had been imported from Nigeria and were destined for an African goods store in Western Germany. Mm. Um, I like to think they threw the rotten meat in just because the trafficking guy hates the guy personally that runs the store in Western Germany. Well, that could be. That could actually be the distraction. Uh, That's curious, though. Um, Ice packs, brother. Use ice packs. Um, Yeah, so I'll post that up. Shiftheads.ca. Sir Christopher Gilbert is with us here, the International Dispatch, touring around the world over to the UK. Did you take any time to watch the... uh, the queen i mean you are you know you're from new zealand so is was the the yeah. activities this weekend on your radar um i wouldn't say on my radar but it it it, it uh, yeah i guess i'd say on my radar I, yeah i watched a bit of it i i missed the funeral because i was out um just because of you know japan hours and working hours and such um but i saw um a bit of the procession um at the end there and uh at the end the awkward family tensions and such going on mm-hmm. um but i uh it did remind me of being 10 years old and watching um you know princess diana's procession as well mm-hmm. which um it was extremely emotional not for me but i just mean like i remember the broadcast of it was just like people yelling and wailing in the streets and such and um i found uh, the queen's procession to be like a really like lovely you know like um, kind of very well put. Well, the pageantry was just beautiful. The colors and yeah. yeah, I mean, I I was saying to uh, my wife while watching it, I was like, all of the little moves that everyone does, like they have to, someone has to invent all this. Uh-huh. You know, someone has to sit down with a little pen. It's like, all right, well now the men put on their hats and they and they walk in a little U in this direction, and then the the other men come up behind them. Someone choreographs all that yeah. one day, apparently back in Queen Victoria's day. Yeah, but no, I I watched it and I thought it was very very lovely. But then people practice it, and they rehearse it, and they probably yeah. started twenty years ago when she got to a certain age, and they probably practice it and practice it and practice it, and then of course that generation probably moves on out of the navy, and so now there's new cadets that move in. Like it's quite amazing if you think about how much work goes into that yeah and what i actually was thinking just then was that um you know people who go in people go into the military and into the navy who probably for example never take tap dancing Mm lessons. where really there's this the crossover is quite similar Mm -hmm. you know like it's quite close you know like if you you go into the army you're like oh yeah i'm gonna go do a hundred push-ups or whatever but then you just start you know just doing little dances Mm mm-hmm it was cool. I like that part. Anyway, so what is the uh, what is the story that happened around this funeral in the UK? Um, well, I mean, in the UK, uh, I'm not sure if Canadian listeners know. I didn't know, but apparently, every channel in the UK, every television channel, because yes, television channels still exist, 
um, uh, stopped what they were doing, hold everything, and uh, broadcast uh, the the you know the Queen's funeral. Yeah. Well, we did too. Yeah. And uh, even X-rated channels Ooh, uh, really? were like, you know what? We like what we do. We like our business model, but a little bit too spicy today. And so they they stopped their broadcasting as well of their content. Channel Five, however, played the Emoji Movie. Wow. Yeah, and I think that's all I really have to say about that. Um, if you're not aware of the Emoji Movie, good for you. You <laughs> probably have good taste and are generally a good, well-rounded human with a good head on your shoulders. Um, the Emoji Movie is absolutely uh, awful. And I, I don't mean uh, in plot or story or, or execution. I mean, it's awful to look at. It's just um, it's an Eminem acid trip <laughs> and it, it, a nightmare. And uh, I have no idea, because apparently Channel 5 followed the Emoji movie with um, an, uh, one of the Ice Age franchise movies. <laughs> so I, my guess is maybe they were trying to put on some kids content. Yeah. If the kids are a bit bored at, you know, like if you have a few friends over to watch the funeral or whatever, and the kids are a bit bored, chuck them in the next room and watch the emoji movie yeah but i'm curious honestly, i think you could be onto something i mean think all the parents are busy they're doing their thing they're maybe you know having people over watching the funeral having the conversation um you know tea and all the things that you saw people gathering to do maybe that was it maybe that's what they were going for god love capitalism I'm a, i mean i'm a capitalist but i mean time and place i would say <laughs> I, d I just think if you're gonna do it like maybe I don't know. Just something different. I mean, like the apparently everyone talks about Queen and Paddington Bear in the same breath now. Put Paddington Bear on or something. Well, that would you know, be something relevant. And yeah. and also, kids have iPads these days. Mm -hmm. You know, just they they don't watch TV. No one watches TV. This is the only time of year that people watch TV. <laughs> you know, so I I think it's uh, I mean. I, you know me, I'm not really like a Mr. High Horse kind of guy where, you know, I'm, if anything, I'm anti-outrage. I'm an anti, I think outrage is funny. Uh, but in this instance, I think it's so horrible and tragic. And I'm ever, I don't know anything about the UK and Channel 5, but Channel 5 is forever stained to me for this. Uh, the Canadian Prime Minister, this is a, an add-on, this is a story 3B here canadian prime minister on saturday was singing songs in a hotel lobby and in england did you hear any of that in japanese news in tokyo i'm just not did really not did not skip the radar no okay. but can i just say jt looked amazing at the funeral because uh the shot after uh, trudeau walking in um to the abbey i used i saw uh, jacinda ardua new zealand's prime minister and her husband clark gayford and like Clark looked like he'd got a suit at Target. He'd slipped in his shirt, maybe. His tire was a bit awkward. He looked like a moving black square tile in his suit, you know. <laughs> uh, JT, the collar, beautiful arch to the collar, you know. The, the tie, the knot nicely snugged up there against the, the, um, the top button. The suit fitted him well. He looked immaculate. And I think uh, compared to a other, lot of other world leaders, uh, no matter what your uh, political leanings are, be proud of your prime minister for looking good. Like, honestly, yep. like he, his I agree. suit looked Well, he great. does love a good costume. 
Just saying. Yeah, hey, he does. He's got experience. <laughs> but he did look fantastic. He does have some pretty good style. I will give him credit for that one. So Christopher Gilbert joins us here in Tokyo. Now, sometimes in this life, business happens. I met Chris when he actually was content producer of the show. And what that means is, is he did Ryan's job before Ryan was here. Then he moved away. And so it's been so great to have you here. I know the Shiftheads love you. Sometimes business happens. You've been working very hard over there doing some freelance broadcast stuff and you do have a new gig um now i just would like to say that um but I mean, share what you can share i guess right now and help us understand what's going on yeah sure so um i've been working as a freelance journalist as you see it here and you know that's involved a lot of um radio stuff not just for the shift but you know like uh, back home in new zealand and other things and um i got very busy when uh, shinzo abe was shot at the start of uh, july and i think um over the last month um people heard some of that content and effectively offered me a job uh so uh i'm currently uh, beginning uh you know not no longer freelance work but full-time work uh, uh, working for an agency, and uh, this agency uh, effectively has a uh, it's a company which has bureaus all around the world, and uh, it pretty much hires those bure- uh, those reporters out to clients, and uh, the clients uh, you know big and small, and it involves TV and reporting, but the the I said TV and radio. Uh, but the long and short of it is that I'm, I'm effectively going to become a full-time correspondent uh, from Tokyo for this company. Um, so yeah, that's my news. Well, that's very exciting. Congratulations. I know you've worked so hard cool. to get there. Now, the impact of that is that we don't know exactly what that means competition-wise, because uh, in this world of broadcasting, you know, most of these broadcasters are all friends for the different companies, but we do work mm-hmm. for different companies. So we don't know what's next. So we really wanted to just acknowledge this now, just in case one of those HR lawyer folks comes in and says, by the way, um, you can't do that anymore with your new deal. Um, and so I wanted to take this moment and do that. And just for one who, you know, this doesn't mean Chris won't be back. It just means that it might be a while and some things need to unfold. I will take this opportunity to say, you are such an important part of everything that I am today in this show. And oh. in the very beginning, when everything blew up and we took it over, um, you were the stability that um, gave me the confidence to and the space to do what I do. And so I would not be who I am today without you. And this show would not be who, uh, what it is uh, without you as well. And you need to know that. I love you very much. Oh, thanks, Shane. I mean, that means a lot, you know. And, like, I remember when the, the, the changeover happened, that was, like, you know, I wasn't even the shift producer. I was a content producer across multiple shows. And I kind of just got thrown at the shift. And I was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm doing this now. And, uh no, it was kind of fun. It was kind of a crazy period because we were figuring out, like, you know, what we wanted the show to sound like mm-hmm. and what we wanted to keep from the previous show and what we wanted to ditch and start anew and stuff. And, you know, and also back then, nobody was vexed. No. You know, it was the, it was the pre-vexed terror um, of, of uh, the COVID virus. And, and also, I'd never met any of my colleagues because I started working at Chorus, you know, from home. So it was a it was a really like roller coaster of a time, but 
I will say that I really, really loved uh, working uh, with you and with Matt back in the day when he was producer, and since then with Ryan and um, and Brendan and everybody. And I don't want to post mortem it because you know I'm still going to come back and and do the show, mm-hmm. but we have to figure out some some puzzle pieces. But um, I would say like last couple of years doing the International Dispatch have been like incredible honor and like and it's and, and just for a broadcaster just to come on and. And um, oh, I can't say that New Zealand colloquialism, um, but I'd get, shoot the breeze. Oh yeah, um, I'd say gotcha. yeah, yeah. I think I got um, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With with you with you guys every week, you know, and just like hang out with friends and just having having yucks on the radio is like, you know, like if if you're a, guys, if you're in media, like it's not really a better gig, you know, to just hang out with your friends on the radio. So yeah, thanks for the kind words, Shane. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, I hope I. Yeah, we'll we'll try and figure something out. We'll find a way. Um, it just yeah. might change a little bit, so who knows? But it's just a chance for you to say thank you to the audience and and uh, give them uh, hear the words from you because in this industry, far too many times, people just disappear, and um, yeah. and that's exactly what we didn't want. So thank you so much for doing this, Chris. Uh, good luck with the gig, and as everything becomes public, uh, we will share where others people's can other people can find you in some of that too, and we can share all that stuff out, and you know, of course you'll be in and around poking around the, the shiftheads.ca Facebook group as well. So we'll see you there. Yeah. I might, I might slink in there sometimes and, and do some posts every now and then who knows, but thank you to everyone who always texts in and says, you think I'm funny um, <laughs> because my wife always reminds me that I'm not. And I think I am. Um, so, and thanks Shane. And, and thanks to everyone. It's been a blast. All right. So Christopher Gilbert, the international dispatch live from Tokyo, Japan. Thanks buddy. Thank you. This is the Shift Podcast. Welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. Now, it is Good News Tuesday-ish here on the Shift, and we always say good news makes good news babies, but scientists make woolly mammoth babies. Greg Fish is here, worldofweirdthings.com, eh, Fishy? How's it going? Well, apparently... um, what's going on with the with the the baby making here what is happening so speaking of making mistakes and x is coming back there is a uh, bioengineering startup that wants to kind of correct some of the uh, mistakes that it sees in nature and on our part and bring back the woolly mammoth and the thylacine the tasmanian tiger um, and their idea is that because these animals vanished relatively recently, we could reintroduce them back into nature and we could say, hey, we can bring back species from the dead. Who knows what else we can do? Um, so that all sounds great and wonderful, but there's some very legitimate concerns about whether they'll actually be able to get it done and whether it's even a smart idea. And also the greater question of what does it actually mean uh, if we can or can't bring animals back from extinction. And that's what I wanted to kind of dive into uh, tonight. Oh, that's all. And just I feel like I got to defend humans here. The death of the woolly mammoth wasn't our fault, was it? No, actually. And we, that's the we screwed that's up the a lot of things. Thing. But yeah, we, no. have, we screwed up a lot of things. But this one wasn't on us. No, not at all. Uh, what really happened is there was a very 
prolonged period of global warming after the glaciation. And that is, uh, by the way, when I say prolonged period compared to now, you know, we're not talking about 100 or 200 years. We're talking about 10,000 years. And yeah. over that period of time, the vegetation so that mammoths... It wasn't four months like we talk about. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, no. So over thousands of years, their preferred food supply kind of went away. And at the time, you have to remember that humans' most most impressive technological feats were spears and sticks and stones and trying to drive mammoths off a cliff. And mammoths lasted us many months, and we used every single part of them. So we were not hunting that species at a level where we could actually pose a threat to it. So again, this is just something something natural. They did out on their own, but the last woolly mammoth only died about four or 5,000 years ago. And mm. the thought is, well, their DNA should be relatively well-preserved. So what we can do is we can take what DNA of theirs we have, we can put in um, DNA of the, of the Asian elephant, which is kind of like the closest living relative, create an artificial embryo and then artificially inseminate an Asian elephant with this embryo and hopefully it will be able to carry this little woolly mammoth to term and then hopefully it's the first in kind of like the rebirths of the woolly mammoth that is Colossal's theory and now. it all sounds great Except we have seen Jurassic Park, right? We've all well, seen... Well, that's where I feel like this is where it goes sideways, right? <laughs> right? We've all seen what happens. We've all seen how this actually is going to... Uh, how, how these things could go wrong. Of course, in reality, what's going to happen is uh, we're, we're not going to you know, have frog DNA and, and life figuring out a way, uh, more than likely what's going to happen is that embryo is simply not going to be viable and it will never really develop because it's a different, it is a different species. It's not going to mature um, like it does. It's not going to have the right chemical signals. It's not going to have the right developmental signals uh, inside the womb of an Asian elephant. Uh, there's also the big question of whether an Asian elephant can actually finish gestating and deliver something that's like a woolly mammoth. So there's all mm -hmm. these things that we don't really think are going to happen simply because we've, we've seen how animals can hybridize. And more often than not, the result is sterile and has numerous genetic problems. So, for example, we have mules who are sterile and who don't live as long as we'd like them to. We have ligers who are sterile and have numerous health problems because their bodies really haven't evolved naturally. So we have a long history of seeing how hybrid animals have limitations. And, you know, it's just there have been too many generations apart between Asian elephants and woolly mammoths. So we don't think wow. that that's going to happen. It feels a little bit like maybe that Mother Nature has a built-in circuit breaker of uh, things getting screwed up. That seems that is... like, right? Like, th this this goes, okay, life is so beautiful and so precious. Do you realize how many things have to go right for something to grow, a plant to grow, a, a being to be born? Like, so many calculations and things have to go right. And we as humans can't just sit there and go, wow. We as humans instead go, wow, I can make it better. 
Well, it's not even so much making it better, but it's that uh, that idea that I can take control of this particular functionality. And, y- you know, yeah, life is tenacious. Life tries to find a way. But when you start dealing with complex life and on the scale of mammoths and elephants and, and whales and whatnot, then things start getting very, very, very complicated. And life is, is kind of just wants to stick to its bacterial form. So the thought is, well, why don't we try something else say the scientists of the uh, of this company um and let's try to bring back the tasmanian tiger the thylacine because those have only been extinct for less than a century we probably have really good high quality dna samples from those and we could put together an embryo that should be viable small catch thylacines are marsupials so if you're thinking that they're relatives of dingoes they're not not even close the closest animal that could be used as surrogate mother for a potential thylacine embryo is something called a dunner these little mousy things that if you actually look them up they you're, you're kind of gonna go w- w- wait what they want a big dingo sized predator out of that thing that's that that can't be right and there's a lot of scientists who say no it it can't be right because yes marsupials hatch very early or not fully developed they have to go into a pouch so they're going to have to come out really early and hopefully they develop just enough they can survive in an artificial pouch that is yet to be invented and on top of all of that let's say that we have a woolly mammoth and we have a thylacine somehow all the things go right and we figure out how to genetically engineer these things into existence well they're the only ones so how how do you get a breeding population that you can reintroduce back into the wild you need thousands of different specimens and you're only going to have one or two that you've actually had to custom assemble you now have to create an entire zoo full of them and make sure they can actually survive out in the wild and then introduce them back into that wild where there's now new animals in those niches that they occupied. So now they're either going to be an invasive species that's going to trample all over the ecosystem to which you've reintroduced them or more likely they're going to get outcompeted and go right back into extinction or which is a which would be a more likely scenario you're not going to be able to produce enough genetic variety so the species will be critically inbred and is just going to die out due to disease and and again being com- out competed and having far too few specimens to have enough healthy offspring i have to tell you everything about this conversation makes me wildly uncomfortable like it really does. Why does it make me feel so uncomfortable when we're talking about engineering life? Like I get it. If you want to build a more robust carrot because it'll grow in more soil or different climates, cool. Go mess with the carrot. This to me, just like everything about it makes me feel uncomfortable. Why do I feel uncomfortable? Because you have a respect for nature basically saying that you know maybe let's not mess with ma- with nature too much because really when i when i look at all of this even from a scientific standpoint and i try to take all the emotion out of it uh the first thing that really comes to mind is this is going to fail even if somehow all their embryos work i've already detailed exactly how this is going to be a gigantic problem and these species you can't just introduce a, reintroduce a species that has died out so what that really tells us is maybe we should take care of the species that we have now 
And instead of trying to uh, default to science and say, hey, I bet with some magic and a lot of technobabble and a lot of jargon, we can resurrect these animals that we're going to drive into extinction by polluting the planet into oblivion. So, you know, no big deal. No, it is a big deal. And all of this technology, first of all, very unlikely to work anytime in the foreseeable future. But even if it does, there are a lot of very uh, complex implications there uh, that, that, that you're alluding to. And the biggest one of them is if you are engineering life, if you're trying to take control of in what direction life has to go, how do you know what the proper evolutionary path is? How do you know that the changes that you're making are going to be good, that are going to be positive? If you tweak things just a little bit here and there, okay, yes, we know for a fact that a certain genetic disorder is caused by this one gene going rogue. Okay, we can fix that. We can fix that in humans. We know for a fact that it's bad. We can hopefully wipe out this genetic disease forever. But when you start Mm -hmm. dealing with much more complicated things like color of people's eyes, color of their hair, um, how tall they are, the odds are, first of all, nature is going to fight back because there's many genes that troll that, and there's the and they're supposed to mutate. They're supposed to change. Nature is always in flux. And then the other problem is, are you going to, by changing those genes, affect something else down the line that could be deleterious? You don't right. know that. There's no way for you to know that. Something that we didn't know. Okay, so I'm desperately trying to find a positive spin here, Fish. Uh, Greg Fish, the article, by the way, at uh, shiftheads.ca, it's on the the Facebook group. The, could it be, this is a stretch, that by somehow taking a woolly mammoth chunk of DNA and weaving it together with an elephant, making a woolly elephant baby, I mean, it's not like they're creating woolly mammoths again. They're just making a new version of it anyway. And... I mean, we've seen how that goes with cars, like some of the new Impalas. The old Impalas are great. New Impalas, ugly, right? So how is it possible that something good could come out of this? Is it maybe some sort of breakthrough in science for, you know, diseases that we can't have been able to cure, brain science, anything? Is it even possible that it could lead to something like that? It is possible that it could lead to understanding how to engineer complex genetic diseases out of our genome. That is that is the hope. That's why they're really doing this, because they're trying to understand how do we actually how do we engineer life to a pretty extensive degree? Um, but like I said, the the best case scenario for that is that we can identify in, in humans, we can identify more complex genetic diseases and weed those out or figure out a way to introduce a virus with genetic engineering that will kind of restructure our genomes while we're still living and eliminate that disease. There are some treatments that are actually based on this idea for cystic fibrosis that are being tested on humans now. They're being approved for human use now. And and that's something that, that we could say, okay, research like that can yield this. But there is that point, and we don't quite know where that point is, but there definitely is a point where when you start hijacking the machinery of life, you don't know what you're doing anymore, and you're by enough way more than you can chew. Would it be crazy? 
which is just by even asking that question, I realize it's crazy that there's been so many conspiracy theories about diseases, pandemics, all of those things, viruses, manipulation, to say that, you know, there's evidence right in front of us that this stuff shouldn't be done, or maybe it is happening in the background and we don't even know it. Well, uh, I, if anything, this story proves that there's a lot, there are a lot of people who have made very grandiose claims, but the reality is that they have not actually done it. And scientists don't think that they will actually be able to for numerous reasons that we have covered throughout the segment so far. Um, the, person who has succeeded most with creating artificial life, and I put that in very heavy quotes, and I'll explain why, is Craig Venter. And what he was able to do is he was able to take raw biochemical um, compounds and essentially duplicate with them artificially using a computer and a machine the simplest bacteria that we know of in a lab. So technically, yes, the machine, the the a machine created this living thing, but what all it was doing is it was copying what already existed. And if he were to try and start manipulating those genes, he would run into the same exact problems. This is why this is why we talk about oh let's modify we can modify this and we can modify that and we can genetically engineer this and we can genetically engineer that in the future. And then when we actually try to do some of these things in the lab, we find out, oh, no, that's actually really, really difficult. There's correction systems in DNA. In the immune system, when we try gene therapy in humans, the immune system flares up and says, wait, hold on a minute. This might be a little bit too much change. Um, So it really is a lot harder than it's made out to be in a lot of popular science articles and and, in a lot of uh, science fiction that's out there that we consume on a regular basis. We think that a lot of things are possible, which are not. And this is this this the extinction experiment is a prime example. It's it's not a thing that's that's viable or possible. But yet we talk about it because it's cool and it's interesting. It sounds like a cool thing that we can do, even though. The reality is this is probably a bad idea and we probably are not going to be able to do it anytime in the next few hundred years. And even after that, if we do understand how to do it, we'll probably look at it and say, "Mm, this is a bad idea. Okay, so uh, very quickly here, I want to translate this to dogs. Wouldn't the evidence in this be puppies and puppy breeds that have been put together that, you know, you get albino dogs and deaf dogs and blind dogs and all these different breeds that should never be bred together that has turned this into this jambalaya of dog DNA? That would be a, that would be a fantastic example. There are definitely dog breeds out there that really humans should not have created. They were just not a great idea. Uh, nature is so when it comes to evolution, as we understand, it, it's kind of like the hippie science, the hippie discipline, you know, try and diversify as much of your genome as possible. Try and have as much variation as possible. Try and, uh, and cross as many things as possible. And that's how you're going to get, uh, the most, uh, the most ability to adapt to a new environment. If you start, mm artificially selecting things to look cute, to act a certain way, to to be a certain way. If you try to preserve a bloodline, which is probably something that uh, you hear a lot from certain corners of, of the world, unfortunately, 
you're going to get very, very nasty results. Nature likes variety. Nature likes experimentation. Nature does not like to retread itself. Um, and we shouldn't make it. Yeah. Well, isn't that the case, right? I mean, that's where these dogs come up, blind and deaf and everything else. And in we want to protect them because we humanize all of it. The reality is, is that if it were in the, in nature, that blind, deaf albino dog is probably going to just die. And that's that part we say where this sort of mother nature kicks in and goes, nope, nay, nay, my friends, this one's not happening. Yet people keep trying to do it again, and then the weakest will succumb. That DNA line ends, does not continue anymore, and life continues to evolve. This is just fascinating stuff. Shiftheads.ca, the link is posted to the worldofweirdthings.com, Greg's website, Greg Fish. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.